Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Jackie Mitchell. This is where we pick the best brains in the business world and you, the listener, feel like you are eavesdropping on a really interesting coffee conversation to give you and your business the inside edge. We take a look into the business mindsets of leaders and brands and probe into how they think, feel, learn, manage teams and themselves. We love sharing the knowledge and serve brain food to keep your business mind healthy. To continue the conversation, you can connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. So while our first guest settles in, orders their coffee, grab yourself one and we'll be right back after this. Men's Envy is comfortably housed within Salon Envy right in the heart of Mornington. A true gentleman's shop, Men's Envy is reminiscent of the classic barbershop where you pay for quality. Plus, you'll get to sit back, relax and enjoy killer cuts and hot towel shaves, all for the modern man. Barbers who love their craft, Men's Envy provide top-notch service, helping men stay sharp and groomed. Men's Envy Mornington, station sponsor. Welcome back to the show. Our next guest is an award-winning finance broker, inspiring mentor and energetic philanthropist determined to create lasting change. How could I not speak to someone with, with a description like that? She has been awarded that many different business awards and she was the founding partner of the Humankind Project, which invests in microfinance initiatives through its charity partner, The Hunger Project, and she's also hung out with Richard Branson on Nicker Island, and I want to find out more. Welcome to the show, Nancy Youssef. Hi, Jackie. Thanks for having me. Good to have you, Nancy. Now, your credentials are impressive, to say the least, but I've got to ask, when you go to a barbecue, when someone asks you, what do you do for a living, what do you say? Oh, God, before I even go to a barbecue, it's what I what I have to... What, which hat am I wearing today is the question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, look, yeah, it, it, it didn't always pan out to be that way. It's just, I guess, organically progressed into so many different hats that I wear. Um, but overall, I, I sort of explain myself as an entrepreneur and um, an entrepreneur with purpose. And then that opens up... It, it's a great open-ended question because that's one way to get people talking. Yeah, that's right. Or a meaningful entrepreneur, you know, something with meaning rather than uh, than all the yeah. sort of bright, shiny objects. Now, did you start your career in finance? Is that where you, you, you began at all? No, I mean, my, my career spanned a couple of industries before I accidentally stumbled into finance. So I didn't always have my own business. I had a about just under a decade of, of different, uh, had a couple of different roles. Um, I mean, my studies were marketing management, but um, I'd worked in uh, international freight and logistics for about five years and um, did a couple of sort of junior kind of roles before that. Um, And then post that and getting into finance, um, I stumbled into finance when I was looking at my own finance plan. Um, And through that, I I met a bank manager who I absolutely, um, I was probably one of those customers from hell about fees and things <laughs> and by the time I'd finished um, this poor guy had offered me a job so um, that was sort of how I embarked on, on, on the banking side of things and uh, spent a, about three years working um, in different roles across um, business development, credit, um, training and education before I then decided to start my own business. So what made you start your own business? Um, I think from a young age, I always had quite an ambition to be my own boss. Um, growing up in a family where, you know, my parents were self-employed, I'd never really sort of seen 
anyone in my family working for anyone. So I guess I wanted to start my own business before I was 40. Uh, that was a little goal I had as a teenager, but I decided to do that 10 years earlier. So yeah, before I hit 30, I decided to go in it. And also mainly to have the flexibility to travel. Um, I used to cringe at having to ask for an extra week of unpaid leave uh, when I wanted to go on longer trips. And so I thought, you know, naively, I'll start my own business, I'll be my own boss and it'll be easy. <laughs> <laughs> now, speaking about easy or not easy, your new book, Fear, Money, Purpose, I was curious, the, the term money and purpose sort of go together, but why did you use the word fear? I use the word fear because firstly reflecting on my own journey um, you know, and, and realizing, you know, a lot of the mistakes I guess I made in that first kind of decade of self-employment, going in with zero business acumen and thinking a business plan was for larger organizations, not for a one-person show, I didn't need a business plan. And so everything I learned was trial and error. But when I scaled back uh, and looked at a lot of the mistakes I'd made along the way, um, a lot of that was from fear. And, you know, feeling that, uh, you know, playing it safe in business, not ha- not backing yourself enough, comparing yourself to other people, um, and, and the list goes on. But also my observations in working in finance for the last couple of decades, the, the common thing I see with a lot of business owners who are self-employed and, and, and business owners is that fear does hold them back from a lot of decisions that ultimately stop them from finding their purpose in their business. Mm. Yeah. So you do a lot of mentoring now with new business startups in the finance industry, many of them women. Is is that a common theme, that fear? I think when you're transitioning from any any role into a new role, there's always that sort of level of apprehension. But I think it takes a whole different scale when you're about to let go of that guaranteed salary uh, into the unknown of the business world and witnessing that over and over and over again with, with finance startups, it definitely is a very common thing because change can be uncomfortable. Mm. And the unknown is also uncomfortable. And so fear is a natural reaction to the unknown. And I think um, that's where the mentoring side of what I do really, I'm very passionate about that because we sit down and we actually help these startups through that fear phase. Yeah, so how do you kick your financial fear to the curb? I mean, mostly I think it's facts and figures. I mean, you know, again, when we think that fear is a stimulus to a, you know, a particular message that our brain is telling us, um, the one way to combat that fear is with knowing your, knowing your numbers. Now, whether you're starting a new business, you know, one, one piece of advice we always give to our startups is if you could have six to 12 months of, of, of a safety net or a financial buffer, to give you the certainty that, you know, you're not under pressure from day one to be running out there trying to make ends meet, particularly if you're a sole breadwinner at home. Um, but also in your own business, uh, before you make any any uh, financial decision, I think it's important to be very aware of where you stand financially and what that investment is going to, to, to give your business and being very clear about where you stand in the first place and what you can afford and what you can't. Mm. Too often fear comes from the either not backing yourself or not knowing your numbers that well. Yeah, okay. 
Uh, it's really, really sound advice. Uh, now, tell us a little bit about your experience on Necker Island with Richard Branson. It's sort of a, a goal, I imagine, <laughs> many entrepreneurs strive to. So how did that happen? Um, really, by, by chance. Um, uh, one thing that's worked for me in my career, you know, there's the old saying and the cliche of it's not, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And so uh, knowing that, uh, I've always been quite an avid networker and not just within the financial services industry, but I've always found I get a lot of um, satisfaction out of meeting new people who are also self-employed and business owners, particularly women. And as being part of the business community, Community, which is, uh, you know, a global organisation. Um, I found uh, my at my tribe, as they call it, and through that, I got the opportunity to um, attend a leadership gathering with uh, 20 other Australian entrepreneurs. And, you know, at the time, you know, looking at it, it was going to be, you know, quite the investment to go. But at the same time, I knew that I you know, received that opportunity for a reason. And so I made the, the choice and off I went and it was the best thing I ever did. And does he hold it in his home or has he got a conference centre built specifically on the island for some, for these uh, for these gatherings? So being Richard Branson, of course, he's never going to stop at one island. He's got a couple. <laughs> yeah. um, the island that we were on, which is Necker, was his, you know, he used to live there, but he now lives on another island, a uh, neighbouring island. Mm-hmm. But this home is one of many of his homes. Mm-hmm. And um, the whole conference, the entire five days, we were, we were absolutely hosted at, you know, at a wonderful level in his home. And it was also, we were spoilt in terms of the speakers that they brought in to speak with us. Um, for the time that we were there. So it was quite an enriching experience, but not just so from Richard. It wasn't just about Richard Branson. I mean, that was the catalyst for me going because I've always really, you know, looked up to to him as a role model and also looked at, you know, the, the humanitarian side of what he does. But also the connections and the bonds that I formed with a lot of the people that I went with, who who I share still many friends, you know, who I've still got as, as friends here in Australia. Mm. Okay, now mm. you, your book, is this the first one you've written or not? Yes, it is. It is. Um, it okay, quite, congratulations. Quite a labor of love. Yes. I, you, know, you know that saying, they say, you know, you don't know what you don't know. I think looking at 18 months from the start to finish, um, I didn't realise how much work would go into it, but I'm so pleased with it. And I'm glad that I finally, it was a bucket list item and it, there was never a right time to do it. But now that I've done it, I'm kind of thinking, oh, maybe there might be a second. So we'll see how we go. The inner, the inner creative is coming out. Yeah, absolutely. So did you, do you ever, have you ever experienced imposter syndrome? Uh, yeah, yes. How long is a piece of string? Okay. How many times? I couldn't count. <laughs> but it's, um, look, it's a common thing that I think, you know, not just women. I mean, women experience it a lot and mm. that comes from a lot of the conversations and, and mentees and, and different, you know, women that I've worked with over the years and even my friends. But at the same time, men experience it. I've had men open up and tell me that they experience imposter syndrome. And I think, you know, when you when you have so much that you want to achieve, um and you start to compare yourself with where everybody else is at, it can um, be quite debilitating. And I think when I was launching this book, I must have experienced it probably on a weekly basis. I, there were two or three times I thought, oh, no, I'm not going to release this book. It's, uh, it's probably, you know, you know, who wants to read my story or who wants to, you know, I'm not a multi-million dollar business. 
So how do you overcome those feelings of imposter syndrome? Stop comparing yourself to everybody. We are all unique and that's what makes us wonderful. <laughs> yeah, that's a really, really nice way to finish. Nancy Yusuf, your book, Fear, Money, Purpose, How to Overcome Your Fears to Find financial freedom and your true purpose you can find that on your website nancyyusuf.com.au and i believe you hang out on linkedin and instagram as well i certainly do quite active there so feel free to follow wonderful thank you so much for your time today and for your insights and we wish you continued success Thank you, Jackie. Thanks for the opportunity. Lovely chatting with you. Loved it. Thanks, Nancy. You're listening to Taking Care of Business right back after this. Welcome back. Our next guest is a former Washington, D.C. news correspondent, humanitarian aid worker and communications specialist. She was a TV news reporter covering major news events for Al Jazeera English, the Pentagon Channel, the Seven Network and Reuters, including the U.S. presidential election and Hurricane Katrina. She then became a media officer for an international aid organisation. And then she was hired to serve as Senior Communication Director for the largest grassroots advocacy program or movement in the world. She now heads up Career CEO, one of the fastest growing executive training programs in Australia. She's a regular commentator for the Sydney Morning Herald, Sky Business News, and her new book, Future Fit, How to Stay Relevant and Competitive in the Future of Work. I've been looking forward to chatting today. Welcome, Andrea Clark. Thanks, Jackie. That all sounds very serious, doesn't it? It does. Well, you know, I, I was looking at it and I go, how do I edit this? And it, I just thought it's too good not to talk about, you know. Um, oh, thanks. That's kind. Yeah. No, well, I think it's true. And, and I think in Australia particularly, uh, and with your international experience, I don't know if you'll agree or disagree, but Australian business people aren't so great at telling everyone the, the facts. You know, they think it's, you know, tall poppy or big noting themselves mm. or something. And I think, look, if you've got the runs on the board, share it. Mm. Thank you. I do think it's important when when you're when you've got things that are a matter of fact over opinion. I do think it's important to share because you know that value is it's important in the context of you know what we're always talking about, whether that be the value we bring to a business or the value that we bring to you know running us uh, running our own operation. Yeah, and I actually read your book. Uh, And I read most books, but I don't read all of them to be honest, because I you know like I'd sort of it's a bit. I sort of flick through and I read bits of it and I go, yeah, I know that bit and move on and all that sort of stuff. But I actually got caught in yours and I thought to myself, what was it about this? Because I do read a lot. I get sent a lot of these business books. What was Mm -hmm. about yours that was different? And uh, as a marketer, I'm always looking for that point of difference. Mm -hmm. And I loved how you actually shared, you told a story. Uh, And it wasn't like reading a textbook, which I read a lot of as well, uh, which can be very dry. But you actually shared your story and then linked that back to how, you know, you could improve that in your work or this is the skill you need or these skills were transferable. So congratulations. I thought it was wonderful. Have you won any business awards yet? Because I've got a feeling that some might be on on their way. Well, you're so kind, and I really appreciate your your words and your feedback. I think it's really important to put a narrative around anything that we're trying to communicate because we have a greater chance of it having impact with the audience. So, no, I haven't, I have not won any awards on this on this one yet, but I have entered, um, I have entered two book awards, and I'm it's just so lovely to be able to do that. So, you know, I have yet to understand what the outcome of those are. They're a few weeks away, I think. Yeah, well, uh, I've spoken to two futurists today and it, it sort of made me a little bit sort of 
overconfident with me being a futurist, you know, and I thought to myself, and I kept, I, I was in the interview, I could feel myself, I could feel it, I could hear myself say, I think the future is this. And I'm thinking, come on, Jackie, you're not a futurist, but I'm going to predict that it will get some awards. So it was really great. So yeah. future fit, how to stay relevant and competitive in the future of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was, and there were some elements that I, that really stood out to me, Andrew, and I just wanted to <laughs> touch on them um one thing that uh i did i actually had a laugh out loud moment uh and it was about your resting bitch face i thought that was fabulous because it was about knowing who you are and knowing your superpower just tell us a little bit about that well this is about knowing and and understanding the value of our reputation capital across the marketplace in which we're active and and what i meant about that particular story was you know i had one perception of how I was I was being perceived in you know in the marketplace, and that happened to be a reference to a LinkedIn photograph that I had as my headshot. And when I and I guess it was a fairly serious looking headshot. And when I met up with someone in a cafe um, for a, obviously a business related meeting, the first thing they said to me was, "Look, you know I don't mean to be rude, but you're a lot friendlier in person than I was expecting." And that was a really important moment for me because it was only then that I realised the photograph I'd had as a, as a headshot, um, you know, was was too assertive and wasn't really, you know, uh, an equal um, sort of representation of what I am like in person. So, you know, that's a very small part of our overall sort of personal brand and reputation capital, but it's really important to know what are the signals that I'm sending through my online presence and does that match up? with what I'm like in person because ideally we want that to be on equal ground. Yeah, and you also use that to your advantage in the story when you were in Baghdad, I think it was, uh, when you said you used your best resting bitch face to actually to express that you were not happy or trying to get something or trying to look tough, I think you were trying to be. Yeah, that's right. It was at the moment that I was coming through customs in the Baghdad airport and I engaged my resting this space you know, as a defence mechanism because it was an incredibly serious situation and, you know, I wanted to look like I was tough enough to get through the airport, you know, without anyone messing with me and, and you know, sort of give that impression off. So that was that was sort of the relevance of that particular yeah, story. Yeah, and look, yeah, I really like that, that, that self-awareness and using your weapons and leading on to personal branding. I mean, you, you do spend a lot of time on that. Uh, and I think that was really refreshing uh, to hear because it's an area that, that I am particularly fond of. Uh, and you talk about distilling who you are if you were to own a word and or as I called the the you of you. I think I was inspired after that. MasterChef. But, uh, but sort of understanding, you know, who is what values do you have? But not only about you, it's about what's relevant to your customers. So it's that inside-out, outside-in thinking. So I really enjoyed that and I really liked the candid, credible and conversational as three sort of areas mm. that you tick. You tick the, is it candid tick? Is it credible tick? Is it conversational tick? How did you get to those three? I love that you described that as a view of you. I love that. It's really terrific. And this is such an important part of understanding our value you know, in our community. And what I love about this is it's such a great opportunity for all of us to take control of of, you know, of how we want to be remembered in the workplace and what we bring, the value that we bring to the workplace. So um, for me, this is about understanding how we're truly unique in, in the business 
how we're truly unique across an industry, but also how we articulate that value because we're all so very good at advocating for others and at PRing others um, when it comes to getting promotions and getting, you know, tasks done and new projects. But often the gap that I see in my practice is we, you know, we don't have that ability when it comes to ourselves. So I really love people to examine how am I truly unique you know, um, in myself and how would I describe that in a, in a candid conversational way when I'm talking to people because it's really important for us all to set that intention with people around us because if someone's going to be advocating for us when we are not in the room, then what do we want that to sound like? What do we want people saying about us when we're not in the room? Exactly. And uh, I also loved your background as a journalist really came through and it was really, uh, it was so insightful and there's so many tips about being trained as a journalist. I, I've worked in media but not as a journalist, but I've worked with some amazing journalists and have learnt a lot through them. And, and it was really nice for you to actually share that experience firsthand and then apply that to business life. And one in another uh, area that I really liked was silence and pauses are like white space <laughs> in design. That was brilliant. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, I think our use of language, I mean, to speak with authority and to communicate with impact means understanding our vocal techniques, our use of language and our body language. And when it comes to use of language, it's very easy to downplay our expertise before we even get onto the content in a conversation. So we need to figure out, well, what are the words that we're using, those tentative expressions and those self-diminishing qualifiers that... That, that undermine our authority in that moment. And as you just mentioned, you know, those are words that are as simple as, you know, just, you know, I'm just here because of this. And it's also about understanding how powerful silence is and how when we embrace silence and pause, we can draw more attention to a subject or an initiative or a pitch that we want to get across the line. Yeah, if you look at the great entertainers in the history of the world, mm-hmm. they understand that. If they're mm-hmm. in, in, a, in a stadium, in an arena, and wanting to have all, you know, 100,000 people eating out of their hands, they know exactly how to manage that. And that's business people, we all have to speak at some point, whether it's speaking in front of a team, whether it's speaking at a seminar or conference, pitching for business there's so many ways that we can do that so understanding those techniques can be a real game changer can't it oh completely this is about having presence and part of having presence is understanding that you can have more influence when you you know by staying silent and by only speaking up when it's relevant if if, say for example you're around a boardroom table but to draw attention and to command presence, you know, means being comfortable in that space and being and it means being comfortable with the content. So in many in many um, contexts, that means knowing when to pause for a few seconds, you know, knowing when to wait for an audience to settle down before you open a keynote, and it means just understanding, reading the room, and making sure that you're signalling that natural composure. Mm. Yeah, and I also liked your not learning is the new stupid. Well, I, I have being busy is the mm. new stupid, but I sort of think it's, it's a sort of very similar thing. Well, I'm, you know, you're obviously a dedicated, continuous learner, Jackie, and I think it's a, a great, it's, it is the most valuable, uh, you know, skill that we will all need in the future of work. When the World Economic Forum says that we'll need 25 days a year of continuous learning just to keep up with what's going on, 
I think they've got a very valid point. Even if we allocate three or four days a quarter to our own development, that is going to be time extremely well spent. So I'd like to ask your audience how much time they've dedicated to their own continuous learning in the next 12 months. And, and could you consider, might you consider allocating and blocking a couple of full days for your own upskilling? I think it's an incredibly important part of being relevant and retraining and modifying our skills you know, to be aligned with a workplace that's taking on and adapting technology at a different pace. Yeah, I think that's going to be the difference between those that succeed and don't. Yeah. And sadly, it's sort of a paradox in a way where small business owners or entrepreneurs, I haven't got time to do that. No, they say it, a day, it doesn't make any sense, does it? No, and I'm constantly hearing that. I'm constantly also investing a lot of my own time in my own continuous learning. And yes, it's time consuming and yes, it can be, it can be costly depending on what you decide to invest in. But there is always a payoff, always an upside to investing in yourselves. And I and I feel like those people who who ignore it do it at their own at their own risk. And I think that, you know, that that consequence may not be obvious immediately, but it will it, you know, it will handicap people in the next couple of years. Yeah, there's some good shortcuts you can do that. Like hang out with people yeah. not like you, you know. Um, just yeah, Definitely. just put yourself yeah. in situations where they're not going to think the same as you and then listen to what they say and, and, and oh. li- listen to podcasts while you're driving. I mean, there's lots of, lots of things you could do. That's right. That is all, for me, all of that's upskilling, all of that's continuous learning, whether it's a 30-minute podcast or showing up to a conference for two hours. There are, there are absolutely there are many, many ways to, to upgrade your own mindset. So take advantage of all of them that are around you and take it seriously. Yeah. Now, just to finish off, there was another part of the book that I have to mention. I thought, do I say it or not? But I just loved it. And it was about the story about Namaste. Was 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 that you doing yoga or was that a friend? I couldn't remember now. Um, Do you remember that? Okay, no, I I haven't given you many clues. So I think it was either you or a friend was doing yoga and they kept for the first time and they kept hearing namaste and they thought that the instructor was saying no mistakes. (laughs) Oh, that was, um, yeah, I think I was probably referring to myself and a couple of girlfriends. We all had this conversation because I'm more of a Pilates person than a yoga person. I kind of feel like you're one or the other. Um, But, yeah, I I really enjoyed writing about my own experiences through this and I tried to pepper them occasionally to give, you know, to give the book a bit of colour and a bit of movement so... You know, I'm glad that you picked up on those, those, you know, those sort of personal narratives that I think tie in everything. Well, I just thought it was lovely, but I loved the optimism that you thought Namaste said no mistakes, and you thought, oh, what a lovely thing to say at the end of yeah. at the end of a session. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. so, you know what? It's, exactly. I can now never listen to someone say Namaste and not think of no yeah. mistakes. So, namaste. thank you for putting oh. a lovely, positive thought in my mind. I uh, oh. really enjoyed it, Andrea Clark. It was a delight. Future Fit: How to Stay Relevant and Competitive in the Future of Work. Um, I highly recommend it. I don't highly recommend a lot of books and I really highly recommend this. Well, I think also it helps the fact that you're a journalist, so it was well-written. I mean, I I did notice a difference and that's no disrespect to business owners because writing a book's really tough, uh, really, really tough. So I don't take that away from them. But, look, I really enjoyed it. Congratulations. I wish you continued success. Thank you so much. It was 
it was such a wonderful project to work on and I'm so happy to hear your feedback. It means a lot, Jackie. Thank you so much for having me. That's a pleasure. Look forward to our next encounter. You're listening to the best brains in the business world. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to Taking Care of Business. Our next guest is a corporate innovator. He works with startup accelerators, children's entrepreneurship. Oh, I'm dying to find out more about that and p- podcasting. Please welcome Steve Glaveski. Good to have you on the show. Now, you do lots of different things. Let's just start off with this corporate innovation that you do. What sort of work does that entail? Yeah, so that entails the work that I do with um, Collective Campus. And basically, we essentially help large Fortune 500 organizations uh, update their uh, values, their systems, their processes in order to support the mindset and the behaviors that uh, are key to entrepreneurship. So moving quickly, taking risks, um, which often doesn't come easy for big listed companies who have a lot to protect. Um, And it also helps to upskill their workforce on things like uh, design thinking, the lean startup, agile methodologies, as well as partner them with startups. So basically operate across capability building, culture change and collaboration with startups. Yeah, well, the Collective Campus was recognised in 2018 as one of Australia's fastest growing new companies by the Australian Financial Review and Corporate Innovation Startup Accelerator, uh, which you've got a base in Australia and Singapore, mm-hmm. uh, that you've been home to over 100 startups and you've raised yeah. more than 25 million US and you've worked with Village Roadshow and Microsoft. They're pretty impressive credentials, Steve. Uh, yeah, look, I think I like to say that it's all cumulative, right? So the one yeah. something those credentials build up. Yeah, I, I, I love that attitude and I find that consistent with a lot in the startup world. It's been, oh, yeah, yeah, but, you know, what's next, what's next? And, mm. and you just sort of have that uh, continue. Were you born like that? Like, how did you get into this? Uh, I think I always had a entrepreneurial itch or at least a creative itch, if you will. I mean, I can think back to being eight years old and my dad not buying me the magazines I wanted to, to, to buy, like basketball magazines. So I'd just go off and draw my own magazines, full, full, uh, complete with little pull-out posters, if you will. Um, so I guess there was a part of me that just never took no for an answer. And when he came across a problem, would always try and come up with a solution of some kind. Um, so I guess I've uh, taken that uh, into adulthood, if you will. Yeah, and uh, obviously uh, you do like a little bit of variety in what you do Mm -hmm. because you also host an iTunes chart-topping podcast Mm -hmm. uh, that gets more than 100,000 listeners a month and it's called Future Squared and you've won a couple of podcasting awards. How did you start that? Yeah, so Squared was just going to be a bit of a marketing uh, channel for us but it became so much more. Uh, We published that onto Apple Podcasts. And before we knew it, we were on New and Noteworthy, and that got us into the Apple Podcast chart. So I quickly took a screenshot of that um, and then used that to help us secure big names. Um, so some of my guests have included the likes of Kevin Kelly, who founded uh, Wired Magazine, uh, Robert Green, uh, who wrote The 48 Laws of Power, and, um, say, uh, Gretchen Rubin, who wrote The Four Tendencies, and even Adam Grant, um, who wrote the book Original. So I've had numerous guests, but... It still is a marketing channel for us, but apart from that, it's access to amazing thinkers. It's relationship development. It's also personal brand building, and it's an opportunity for me to learn a hell of a lot about such a broad range of topics from everything, everything from neuroscience to entrepreneurship to technology, economics, politics, psychology, philosophy, you name it. And I find that when you read or learn across disparate 
areas. It just helps you connect a lot of dots um, and makes you informs your decision making and your problem solving in a way that knowing a lot about a very narrow uh, field of subjects um, just wouldn't do. Yeah, it's certainly good if you're a, a consultant or certainly or at the very least makes you an interesting dinner party guest. <laughs> uh, but but I, I hear what you're saying with this show. It's the same thing. I get to speak to people like yourself and it's almost like you're going to university for the day. That brain p- picking is just wonderful. I, I, it mm. really is it, very stimulating. Yeah. And it's so immersive as well. Mm. Uh, I think when it's a conversation with someone, uh, I find the neural uh, connections tend to be a little bit more stronger than they are if I was to just read it uh, in a book. I agree totally. And I do like the, uh, the the format of radio or podcasting, that audio format, because it really is the theatre of the mind. So you can really tap into that that creativity side of mm. things. Now, you yeah. also founded a Lemon Stand, which I love the brand name of, a children's entrepreneurship program. Uh, how did that happen? Yeah, with the lemonade stand, basically what happened was um, we, uh, one of my employees um, more or less suggested, hey, during December and January, business is really quiet with the corporates. They all go off on holiday and forget about working uh, for a little while and don't really pick up until February. But school kids are on break. And as we know, the world is fast changing. Um, Kids need to learn to become more adaptable in order to succeed in the 21st century. And stuff they're learning in school, while relevant, may not help them with that. So how about... We take what we're teaching large organizations and startups around rapid experimentation, building prototypes, marketing, and so on, and teach kids. And we've had kids as young as seven come through the Lemonade Stand program, which has been rolled out to over 1,000 kids. So it's basically a two-day workshop where kids run through the whole gamut of uh, tell me about a problem you want to solve, uh, coming up with solutions to that problem, building a business model around that, building some prototypes, websites, landing pages, and things of that persuasion to test their ideas and then pitching their idea at the end of the two days to an audience. Um, and that's been so successful that we now built that into an online version that we'll be launching in April um, to basically scale that through schools and also individuals who want to buy uh, or purchase a subscription to that. But that essentially what, what we really want to see kids learn to become is more adaptable, uh, more critical thinkers, because for so long things changed very slowly, but now we're finding that up to... 40% of today's jobs are more likely than not to be automated in the next 10 to 15 years. So things that even white-collar jobs, uh, blue-collar jobs, service sector jobs are under threat. Um, and the only antidote to uncertainty is to get really good at adaptability, um, which is what uh, Stephen Hawking said. You know, um, adaptability is essentially intelligence. So adapting to uncertain circumstances, uh, I think entrepreneurship is an awesome vehicle to help kids with that and also just to become more resilient um, with their mindset because they're going to learn to hear no um, as part of entrepreneurship, but no is really a lesson learned. And with each no you hear, you can make those changes that are required to get to a yes. Oh, that's so inspiring, really inspiring. Uh, Have you noticed when you're dealing with the children any gender preferences? Are you finding that more of the the boys are more attracted to the tech side Mm. compared to females? What's your view there? Yeah. I mean, I know there's been studies performed on, on gender predispositions towards certain types of work, um, and I think uh, the studies around psychology suggest that um, girls prefer work whereby they're dealing more with people, whereas boys prefer work where they're dealing more with things. Um, however, that's not true across across the board. Um, you're going to have a lot of overlap as well. 
We do find that the girls in the, in the Lemonade Stand program come up with a lot more altruistic ideas, um, like solving big problems, whether it's to do with the environment, whether it's to do with homelessness, uh, whether it's to do with the welfare of animals. Um, and we find that the boys are often looking at things um, like creating uh, one, one such example I can think of is a Netflix for video games. Uh, video games are so expensive. How can we um, bring down the price? Well, why don't we just create a Netflix for video games where you pay $10 a month and we can play a lot of games? So um, I think you see some of those sensibilities come out as kids at a, at a very young age. Oh, that must be fascinating. <laughs> I'd, mm. I'd be totally obsessed with looking at that behaviour. But let's talk now about your new book. It's your first published book called Employee to Entrepreneur. What motivated you to write it? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the statistics today, over 50% of people are dissatisfied at work. And I myself spent about a decade in the corporate world uh, working for big brands like EY and Macquarie Bank and KPMG. And, and whilst I learned a lot there during my first few years, I got to a point where I had, I suppose, what you would call, quote-unquote, the trappings of success. But deep down, I felt miserably comfortable, uh, whereby I didn't really see the value of what I was doing come the end of the day. I was quite unfulfilled, and I felt that I could give a hell of a lot more. And there's so many people in the same position, but they don't know what to do, like what's step one, and they're scared of falling into a lot of the common pitfalls because 96% of startups fail, and usually it's because they um, jump to conclusions or they end up in with paralysis analysis. And a lot of that comes out of the behaviors we learn in the corporate world around research, analysis, planning, calling a meeting with a few people whenever a decision needs to get made just so we can spread that accountability. And, and ultimately... You can get away with that in a, in a big corporate environment because you've got a business model that makes money and you're essentially playing defense. You're protecting that. But as an entrepreneur, particularly during the early stages, there's so much uncertainty. You haven't got a business model that makes money yet and you're playing offense. So you need to move quickly. You need to take risks. You need to learn what works, what doesn't, and move forward. And you know, too much research analysis and planning can be the undoing of many, many an entrepreneur. So the book basically distills my seven years in the entrepreneurial space, be it all the work I've done working with you know, almost 100 startups uh, out of 50 large organizations, uh, read hundreds of books, you know, just had thousands of conversations, all that sort of stuff, distilled into 280 pages. And it basically covers everything from why you should get into entrepreneurship, whether entrepreneurship is right for you, um, how do you identify your purpose, what you should work on, uh, how do you experiment quickly, what are some awesome marketing and sales strategies you should use, as well as how to 10x your productivity, because it's easy to get busy being busy, but it's another thing to get busy being effective and still have time to spend with family and friends come the end of the day. Yeah, so what sort of mindset or character attributes are fundamental to success for an entrepreneur? Yeah, uh, I mean, there's a few, but the, the biggest, the two biggest ones really, uh, and I'll quote Calvin Cormier as president, he said that uh, talent's Education and genius aren't enough. The world is full of educated derelicts, is what he said. Um, hmm. Persistence alone trumps everything. Um, so persisting in the face of setbacks after, well, setback after setback after setback and having a really positive relationship with adversity, I think that's going to get you further than anything else will. Um, and that's why I think schools place a lot of emphasis on the technical ability and perhaps not enough on the emotional intelligence that really underpins success across a number of different fields, not just entrepreneurship. Um, so being comfortable with your ego being challenged, I think, is a big thing, which is why I like to put myself in the firing line sometimes in terms of my own ego being challenged. Um, just the other night, I got up on stage at a 
open mic stand-up comedy um, event in front of like 20 or 30 people, which is a small audience. And if I was to do a keynote on entrepreneurship, that would be nothing. But they're expecting me to make them laugh. And that is a whole different ordeal. And it can be quite uh, <laughs> confronting. So I think if you've got a history of putting yourself in the firing line of having your ego challenged um, and you're comfortable with that, um, you're probably you've got some of the prerequisites or one of the big prerequisites rather to having a shot at entrepreneurship being a potentially a rewarding career path for you. Did you get a laugh? I got one. Um, <laughs> however, having said that, about five of my jerks fell completely flat. <laughs> you actually need plants in the audience to laugh and then everyone will follow. Uh, now, you, you mentioned earlier about planning. A lot of entrepreneurs spend too much time planning so they get that paralysis by analysis factor. Mm-hmm. But how much planning should be done in your view? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a difficult question to answer without having the context of what are we actually planning for, what are the variables we're looking at, um, What's, what's the bare minimum? So if, so if someone's wanting to start a business, they're wanting to become mm-hmm. an entrepreneur, they've either got a new business idea or they're involved in the startup or some idea, business idea, what's the bare minimum they should do from a The bare minimum they should do is basically identify uh, the problem, the solution and the customer segment. Um, and, you know, they can spend time looking at Gartner and Forrester research reports or they can just find out what the assumptions underpinning this problem, this solution, and these customer segments are, and go out and test them as quickly as they can. So a really simple example of that would be, um, say, hypothetically, it's 2008, and I've come up with the idea for Uber. Rather than building the platform, building a 100-page business plan, onboarding hundreds of drivers, what I'll do is test the biggest assumption, which is that people will actually trust a stranger enough to get into a vehicle with them. How could I test that? Well, I could go out on a Saturday night to a busy taxi queue where people are waiting for a, for a cab and just ask people whether or not they'd be willing to spend or to pay $20 to get a, a ride home with a stranger, providing that we showed them proof that this person wasn't a criminal or something to that effect. Yeah. Would people say yes or no? And that's the fastest, quickest, cheapest way you can start to test those key assumptions that underpin your business model because you're going to have a lot of assumptions that underpin your idea, but there's going to be maybe two or three make-or-break ones. And if they turn out to be false, then you can get everything else right, but the business more likely than not is not going to succeed. Steve, when you are out at a bar or a barbecue or something and someone asks you, what do you do, how do you describe yourself? Uh, it's, a, it's a good question and it's, it's a difficult one to answer, particularly when I do podcasting and book writing and working with corporates and kids and all this sort of stuff. And I used to say I am a corporate innovation consultant, but I, I like to read people's body language, and that didn't get people excited. So nowadays I open with I'm an author, <laughs> and, and and that gets a conversation going. And then as a byproduct of that conversation going, like, well, how did you get into that? And then I can start talking about the other work that I do. But if I open with I'm a consultant, um, that pretty much kills the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree. I was, I was thinking you don't call yourself a serial entrepreneur. Uh, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a serial killer. I always laugh at that one. Steve Glaveski, employee to entrepreneur. Uh, a great read, How to Earn Your Freedom and do work that matters. Uh, I assume you can buy that book anywhere books are sold? Oh, yeah. I mean, you can buy it at all the big uh, bookstores like Dimmicks. You can find it online at Amazon, Booktopia, you name it. It's there. Just search for Employee to Entrepreneur on Google and it'll, it'll pop up. It'll be the first thing. 
Great. And I've just a quick last question. Your website, Employed Entrepreneur, it's dot, is it I? I, 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 o. I, I haven't seen that before. What's that stand yeah. for? Uh, input, output. Oh, okay. I wasn't oh, sure cool. if it was 10 or <laughs> or what. I actually quite like the thought if it was 10. So people are now moving away from the dot-com into other dot-something yeah. else. People are moving away. I think, I mean, a lot of that is because it's a bit of a land grab and most of the dot-coms are already taken. And mm. if you want to secure a dot-com, you probably have to pay upwards of $5,000 for a, you know, a common word, uh, if not more. Um, whereas the .ios, the .ccs, uh, the .tvs even are starting to um, make a bit of a run and, and they're just a lot cheaper um, to get started with. Yeah, well, it's, it's a way for you to walk the talk. I like it. Steve Glaveski, thank you so much for your valuable time. Thank you so much, Jackie. It's been a pleasure. I loved it. Uh, you're listening to Taking Care of Business as we be- pick the best brains in the business world. We were right back after this. News. That's the end of another stimulating show. We hope you've enjoyed eavesdropping on our conversation, picked up some tips, learned something new, or at the very least feel inspired. If you just joined us, you've missed a lot, but the podcast will be available on my social media, J 